see the guy out on the deck to begin with? How many are glad he got inside? How many thought it was going under? First time I saw it, I was like, they're going under. You know, if you're like me, you'd rather be in church watching the storm on the screen than being in the morning. As Christians, do we go through storms? Yeah, of course we do. Not necessarily at a, on the sea. Now, John Newton did it. But we go through storms in the Christian life. You know, the Bible says that Christians are like a ship. And the trials we go through are like storms, and the outcome is the purposes of God. And today, we're going to look together at one of the greatest storms in all of the Bible. It's a storm that Jonah went through in Jonah chapter 1. And what this storm does for us is it answers some very critical questions about storms. If somebody has said this about a Christian. A Christian is either in a storm, coming out of one, or going into one. How's that for good news this morning? <clears throat> Follow Jesus. You'll either be in a storm, you'll be coming out of one, or you'll be going into one. And we greatly need the answers to these questions that Jonah 1 provides for us. Let's take our Bible, shall we, again, and turn to the opening chapter of the book of Jonah. Now, the chair of the Bible in front of you is page 920. I invite you to find it. You can find the Old Testament prophet of Micah, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. You can find the book of Jonah. We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about God's purposes in storms. Let's just take a moment, shall we, and let's pray together. Father, some of us are in a storm right now. All of us have been through storms. And if we knew the future of 2020, we know storms are coming. And we thank you that this episode in the life of Jonah. It's not just about him, it's about us. And it's about your purposes. And so today we come to learn from you. In Jesus' name. Look with me at verse 4. Now Jonah, as we know, has run away. He's got on a ship. He's on his way to Tarshish. And he does not want to do what God has asked him to do. And so the Bible says in verse 4, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now let's just start there with the very first question, who sends storms? What's the answer? God. Yeah, God does. God does. Now this opening line reminds me of a pitcher hurling a fastball. Sort of like Nolan Ryan, who could throw over a hundred miles an hour. The Ryan Express, as they called it, terrified, exposing uh, opposing hitters, especially when he was wild, which he was in his early career. And so as I see this, the Lord hurled this great wind. I, I think of the Lord like a major league pitcher, winding up and letting leash with a 100-mile fastball. Fastball, But the Lord is never wild, is he? His fastballs are always on target every time. And this refers to a violent, sudden, 
unexpected hurricane force storm. Now, this helps us right at the very beginning settle a very important issue, and that is this. God does send storms into his children's lives. Uh, one day, many years ago, I was on a panel with a number of pastors. And I remember saying that God sends suffering into the believers' lives. And the pastor who was uh, sitting right next to me just got very, very upset. And he said, Satan is the cause of suffering. God never does that. He said, if you believe that, that's not the kind of God that I believe in. And I, I just, I mean, he just about as upset as any pastor I've ever seen. What does the Bible say? Well, look at the very last chapter of the book of Job. And notice what it says. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted him and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and gold ring. Who brought the trouble on Job? Who did? The Lord. And I want to say, I thought Satan is the one who did that. Who's bigger than Satan? God is. And Satan can only do what God allows him to do. God is in charge. And I have to say this morning, uh, very candidly, I agree with what Billy Graham said as he preached at the memorial service for the 9-11 victims. He said, I don't understand why God allows so much suffering in this world. And I have to say, I agree with that. But if it comes down to a God that I can fully understand, or a God who is fully in control, I believe in the God who is fully in control. And if that's not the God that we believe in, and we've got much, much bigger problems. Much bigger problems. Now the Bible teaches us that there are two types of storms. Pastor Warren Rearsby speaks about this, and I want you to listen to what he says, because it's so helpful for us to understand when we're going through a storm. He says as we read our Bibles, we discover that there are two kinds of storms. Storms of correction, when God disciplines us, and storms of perfection, when God helps us grow. Now, which one of these was Jonah? Yeah, he was in a storm of correction. And the natural question comes, well, how do we know which one we're in? Well, just let me say this. If we need correction, we'll have no trouble figuring that out. Jonah found out real fast what the problem was. And God is very, very clear with his children. He never keeps us in the dark about what's wrong if the storm we're going through is a storm of correction. Now there's something else we need to understand. God is not angry with us when he sends a storm. You ever heard somebody say, you know, what's God got, what's God got against me? Now, why is God treating me this way? And we need to understand the Bible is very clear 
that God is not angry at his children when he sends us through a storm. Look at what Jeremiah said, who went through some horrible storms. He said, correct me, Lord, but only with justice, not in your what? Anger. Lest you reduce me to nothing. Brothers and sisters, God was not mad at Jonah. He's not getting back at him. He's not lashing out in anger. The Messianic Jew and, and great Old Testament scholar Charles Feinberg said it was gracious of God to seek out his disobedient servant and not allow him to remain long in his sin. And that's what's going on here. Storms are because God is just, because he's loving, because he's gracious, and he wants to correct us. And when you're in a storm, always remember, God is not mad at me. Well, as we continue here in this storm, we, we come to this second question, and I think it's a question we all ask. Why in the world do we need storms? Why do you need storms? Why do I need them in my life? Well, that's what this is really about. Why Jonah needed these, this storm he was in. Let's take a look at it together, shall we? Number one, storms wake us up. Isn't this good for an 8.30 service this morning? <laughs> look with me at verses 5 and 6. Then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the seeds of light before them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Uh, it's very interesting, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint translates verse 4 in this way, that Jonah slept and snored. Hey, some people can sleep through anything, can't they? <clears throat> and that's what Jonah is doing. And so the captain, who is afraid for his very life, like we saw in that storm we were watching, comes and shakes him away and says, why don't you pray? We're going to go down. You know what's worse than being asleep physically? It's being asleep spiritually. How many of you think that Jonah's biggest problem was he was asleep spiritually? Yeah, that's far more serious. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the Bible uses sleep as a metaphor for spiritual indifference. And that's why Jonah needed this storm to wake up from his spiritual indifference. Let me ask this morning, are you in a place of spiritual indifference? And you would say, Pastor, I'm in church this morning. I can't be spiritually indifferent if I'm in church. Can you be sitting in a pew and be spiritually indifferent? Of course you can. <laughs> and what are the signs? How would we know if we have come to a place of spiritual indifference and we need to be awakened up? Well, let's look at it for just a moment. Number one, complacent over sin. 
complacent over sin. Jonah thought he was getting away with his disobedience, didn't he? By the way, do we ever get away with sin? Do we? Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, God never lets his sin, his children, sin successfully. Well, how do we need to hear that? If we think we're going to sin and get away with it, God will not allow that to happen in the lives of his children. Now, look at what Jonah's doing. Everything's going great for him. He goes down to the port. There's a ship. It's going to Tarshish, where he wants to go. He's got the money for the fare. It's nice weather. And he's got a nice, cozy bed down below. Everything's going his way. Hey, don't ever think that just because everything's going your way, your sin is okay. See, everything might be going our way, but all that may mean is that we are complacent in our sin. Notice the second thing. Jonah abandoned his spiritual disciplines. The captain asked Jonah to pray. Let me ask you this morning, did Jonah ever pray in the storm? No, he did not. In fact, the only ones who prayed in the storm were pagan sailors. No indication that Jonah ever cried out to his God. And we say, why didn't Jonah pray? Hey, can you pray to a God you're running away from? Lord, I'm running away from you. Would you please calm this storm so I can pick up speed? How many think that prayer is going to work? Of course it's not. Listen, here's a clear sign of spiritual indifference. You stop going to church. You stop praying. You stop reading the Bible. You stop fellowshipping with other believers. I've been a pastor for 35 years. When I see people drifting off like that, I know they're heading for trouble. I know spiritual complacency is sitting Here's another sign of no zeal for ministry. Jonah was a prophet. Hey, what are prophets supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be preaching, was he? He was running away from preaching. His mantra was get someone else. And we never hear that in church, do we? We never hear somebody say, get someone else. You know, a young lady stopped by our house this week, and you know what she wanted to do? Ellen answered the door, and she wanted to share her faith with Ellen. Guess who she was with? Come on, you know what's here the Mormons and Joel's witnesses, right? <laughs> she was a JW. Are the cults zealous for their faith? Are they? You better believe they are. When we're content to do nothing for the Lord, just receive, not give back. That's a bad sign. Lord, thank you for what everyone else has poured into my life. My marriage, my children, I'm so thankful for that. But I'm just going to sit back and receive. I'm not going to give back. That is a bad, bad. 
And then, another one. No compassion for the laws. Did Jonah care about the souls of these men? Well, not until now. Look down at verse 9, and notice what he said. He said, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is the very first time he gave his testimony and told these people about the Lord. Uh, how many of you think if the storm had not come, if the year that it would have taken to get to Tarshish, Jonah would have told these men about the Lord? I mean, I don't think so. I don't think so. You see, these unbelievers showed far more concern about him than he did for them. Let me ask you a very important question this morning. Can you tell when a church has lost its compassion for the lost? Can you tell that? You walk into a church. And it doesn't take long and you can figure out whether they got the compassion for the lost. Because if the church doesn't have compassion for the lost, that church will be deader than the Lord. And they'll come together, they'll go through their routine, they'll have their service, and then they'll go, and the next week they'll come and do the same thing, there would be no concern for the laws. And it's always a sign of spiritual indifference. How many think this morning John and me would be woken up? Do we need to? Do There's no doubt today that in our services there are some of us we need to be woken up. And that's one of the reasons why God allows storms to come. What's the second reason? Storms raise questions. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Hey, you know what I would do at this point? I would say, well, let's try two out of three. <laughs> if that doesn't work, let's try three out of five. Who's directing this lot to fall on Jonah? Yeah, God is. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, I feel the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea of the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What in the world is this you have done? Are you crazy? That's my paraphrase. <laughs> For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. When the lot fell on Jonah, the sailors started asking questions. By the way, did you notice he didn't answer the first question, what is your occupation? Why not? The prophet who's not preaching? How uncomfortable a question is that? 
That's like a construction worker not building. What's your occupation? Well, I'm a construction worker. What have you built? Well, nothing. Oh. A prophet who's not preaching. These questions made Jonah face very hard truth. And what was that truth? He was fleeing from the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then the sailors knew this storm of correction is because of Jonah. Now, can we just stop here for just a moment? We're going to learn from our trials. We have to ask hard questions, do we not? Are you with me on this this morning? If I'm in a trial and God's purpose is correction or perfection, then what I've got to do is I've got to be willing to ask hard questions. You see, the worst thing we can do is to avoid the hard questions. And you know what? Jonah didn't want to face these questions and he needed somebody else. When's the last time you had somebody in your life come to you and say, brother, sister, there's some hard questions we've got to talk about. And God has sent them because it's for your good. The questions that we need to ask like this, Lord, why did this happen? Lord, did I go wrong? Lord, what are you teaching me? Lord, is there sin somewhere? I got deep. Those are hard questions. But if we don't ask them, Now look at the third reason why we need storms. Storms prick our what? Our conscience. You see, I can run away from God, but I can't run from the storm. Look at verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of that this great tempest has come upon I know, says Jonah, that I am the problem. I am the guilty one. How many of you think this morning that's what God's driving at this storm? <clears throat> How many of you think that's why the storm came? Of course, of course. You know what Jonah had? He had a hard heart, didn't he? 
And when you've got a hard heart, sometimes the only thing that will soften that heart is a storm. Two of the most significant verses in all the Bible are Hebrews 3, 12, and 13. Listen very Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the worst condition of all. Having an unbelieving heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See those two verses? Put them over Jonah chapter 1. That was Jonah's problem. My mother, when I was a boy growing up, often used to say this. She said, many marriage problems boil down to this. It's hard against hard. I'll never forget that when we would see marriages that were in trouble. And she would say sometimes the problem is it's hard against hard. And in some marriages that are struggling, maybe it's only one person who has a hardened heart. And they will not allow their conscience to be pricked. They harden themselves, refusing to admit that any fault is theirs at all. And I know this, you cannot solve marriage problems if you have a hardened heart. That heart has to be solved. And we will never learn from the storms of life if we remain hardened to the Lord. There's no way to can learn it. Jonah finally was willing to say the words of the old Sandy Patty song, I'm the one to blame, I've caused all the... And that's why God sends storms. Our conscience needs to be prayed. This morning, if you're in a storm, it could be a storm of perfection. You've done nothing to be corrected for. God is just perfecting you. But for some of us, like Jonah, John Newton. It's a storm of correction. And God needs to wake us up. God needs us to ask the hard questions. God needs that hardness to be himself. Every storm has lessons that is designed to teach us. 
This morning, as we come to the end of this episode, there are some very important lessons we need to learn. And please focus in on these, because God is teaching us some very important things. Here's the first one. Number one, you cannot run from a sovereign God. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. You know what the sailors tried to do? They tried to resist God, just like Job. But it was no use. The more they resisted, the Lord simply said, Okay, 100 miles an hour in my fastball's not enough. How about if we pull it up to 105? <laughs> That's not enough, let's go up to 110. And the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. You know, about 150 years later, there was a man whose heart was very hard and thought he was the epitome of greatness. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. God gave him a storm. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar finally learned. In the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 35, he said, God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And Jonah and the sailors are now learning the same thing. The sailors knew there's only one thing they could do, and that's give up resistance. Let me ask you this one. Have you given up resisting? Have you come to that place where you have said, God, I believe you're a sovereign God. You're in control of all things. I don't understand all that. That's what I believe. And you're rebelling against that God. That makes no sense. And what the storm teaches us is it's not going to work. You cannot run from the sovereign God. Here's the second lesson. Two. You cannot worship without obedience. Look at verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now you know what they're doing? They're praying to the true God. Before this, they were praying to their pagan gods, their idols. Now they're praying to the true God, and prayer is a form of worship. But then notice what they did as a result of the worship. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its rage. You see the connection? They worshiped God by praying to him, but then they obeyed God. Total opposite, by the way, of Jonah. What was Jonah's testimony back in verse 9? I'm a Hebrew, I feel the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The 
word fear there means to worship. Jonah said he worshipped the real God, but he disobeyed. Would you just wander here this morning? These pagan sinners do more about worship than the prophet of God. They knew. You don't come to church like this and worship God and then go out and rebel against Him. That isn't worship. They knew that. And Jonah needed to learn. One of the best definitions I've ever seen of worship is also one of the simplest and one of the most profound. It was given by Pastor John Calvin. And listen to what he said. Lawful worship consists in obedience alone. And he was right. Whatever we do, whatever we say, this is worship. And obedience is not connected. It's just useless emotions. Here's a modern day pastor. J.D. Greer, look what he says. True worship is obedience to God for no other reason than that you delight in God. We're here today because we delight in God. That's why we're here. And if we delight in God, then that delight is always manifested by an obedient way. If you take obedience away from worship, all you have is And if our storms teach us to obey God, they've also taught us to worship God. And we'll help you. All right. Lesson number three. You can't bow without commitment. Look at verse 16. Then the man feared the Lord to see him. And they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's very interesting, literally, these words are very intensive in the original language. It means they bow vows and they sacrifice the sacrifice. It reveals thoroughness. Their hearts were in this. They vowed that, Lord, when we get to land, we're going to glorify you and we will make you known. And the way we're going to do that is by offering sacrifice. And so they followed through with the sacrifices, whether on the ship or when they got the land, we do not know. But they vowed to glorify God and make him known for what he had done. And then they followed through with sacrifices by thinking of Jonah. He vowed to serve God as a prophet of the Lord and made no sacrifice. 
shape. I can't say, Lord, I'm committed to you. I can't sing. You know, I once was blind, now I see. What a wretch I was, but now I'm saved. You know, for 10,000 years, I'll, I'll be singing your praise. If those words come from my mouth, then they've got to be found with you. If our storms teach us to glorify God and give Him our best, our storms have taught us well. If our storms teach us to glorify God and give Him our very best, our storms have taught us well. How many think we need these lessons in our lives? God in His grace is a storm to teach them to us. It's about to give a shot. Close our eyes. Take a moment. Come through the storm and God has taught you these lessons. Would you thank Him? Are you in a storm right now? God is revealing Himself to you in pain of God. Would you thank Him? Whatever storm comes, this year, would you say, God, I don't understand all your ways, but I believe you're sovereign. And I will allow you with grace to teach me. I will not. Lord, today, teach us about yourself. But that's why we're here. We believe in you. We know that you exist. We are your children. We want to walk with you. We want to know your heart. As Moses said, Lord, show me your ways. That we might represent you well in a world that desperately needs to know. Thank you. For Jesus.